For the last six years, Jesse James has led this outlaw band. Picking his way on a thoroughbred grade through the trails of this southern land with a gun in his hand. And we're listening to Charlie Daniels singing Riding with Jesse James from the 1980 country music concept album The Legend of Jesse James. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And after a century and a half, Jesse James remains one of the most iconic and romanticized figures in American history. Many people even see Jesse James as a type of Robin Hood or a folk hero, despite his sometimes murderous ways. Although separating fact from fiction can be quite a task, we've brought in America's best storyteller of the Old West. Roger McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Here's McGrath. The great American poet, Carl Sandburg, said, Jesse James is the only American bandit who is classical, who is to this country what Robin Hood or Dick Turpin is to England, whose exploits are so close to the mythical and apocryphal. Well, most biographers of Jesse James would agree with Sandberg's description. They portray James as dashing, courageous, and romantic. And he certainly was all of those things. However, it can also be ruthless, cunning, and deadly. Most of all, though, he was extraordinarily good at what he did, rob banks and trains. For 16 years, Jesse James rode and robbed and went unapprehended. When his end did come, it came not at the hands of a lawman, but at the hands of a traitor in his own gang. Jesse James was born in 1847 in Clay County at the far western edge of Missouri, an area known as Little Dixie. He is the second son of Robert and Zerelda James. Their older son, Frank James, is born in 1843. The father, Robert James, is a Baptist minister. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. Robert James, he's selected by a group of men there who want to go out west to California. And he's the chaplain on this expedition to go out gold mining. Jesse's a very young child at this time, and his father dies in California. Jesse's mother, and now widow, Zerelda James, is a fierce Southern woman. She remarries twice after Robert's death and continues to manage her late husband's 300-acre hemp farm and seven slaves. Here's historian David Eisenbach. Zerelda raised both of her sons uh, to not only uh, be for the institution of slavery, but to fight for it and to commit crimes in the name of the cause. Her second marriage lasts no more than a few months before that husband leaves also. Then in 1855, she marries Dr. Reuben Samuel, who spends most of his time farming rather than practicing medicine. He's quiet and reserved. Zerelda is stormy and assertive. It proves a good match, and they have four children together. But life in Missouri in the 1850s is hardly stable. The question of slavery is ripping apart the American frontier. When Jesse is just nine, the Kansas-Missouri border war erupts. During the five years of bloody war that follow, everybody on the border is forced to take sides. 
1854, the institution of slavery is being challenged in the nation's capital. The Nebraska Territory on Missouri's border is ready to become a state. Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas believes that the majority of citizens in a territory should decide the issue of slavery for themselves. Douglas proposes splitting the territory into Kansas and Nebraska and have the residents in each area vote for a slave state or a free state. The Kansas-Nebraska Act leaves the decision on whether a new territory would be slave or free to the voters. This bill will triumph. It will impart peace to the country and stability to the union. No opposition to this act leads to the formation of the Republican Party and its first presidential candidate, John C. Fremont, in 1856. Well, nonetheless, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passes, which means slavery could possibly expand into new areas. This ignites a firestorm, and Kansas becomes a battleground as free soil proponents rush in from the north and slavery advocates rush in from Missouri. Western Missouri becomes a staging ground for pro-slavery Southerners and are pejoratively called bushwhackers. Free soil farmers from the north are called Jayhawkers. Kansas becomes bleeding Kansas. Could be said, the Civil War starts in Kansas in the late 1850s. On the James family farm, Zerelda is busy shaping her boys to be the next generation of pro-Confederate fighters. Here's Jesse James historian, Michael Gooch. She was not a wallflower by any means, very vocal, very outspoken. Don't you take anything from those Yankees, you hear me? It's every man's responsibility to hold on to what they've got. Over the next six years, the James family farm transforms into a Confederate stronghold. On April 12, 1861, the South fires on Fort Sumter and the Civil War formally begins. Frank James is immediately plunged into battle, fighting for the militia in the Confederate Army. But Union troops rout the Confederate forces in Missouri and then occupy Clay County. Here's T.J. Stiles, Andrew Nelson, and Civil War historian Christopher Phillips. The local militia forces began to raid the homes of those suspected of assisting the insurgents and partisans in Clay County. And the war quickly took on this savage counterinsurgency, guerrilla warfare conflict that can be some of the most savage warfare of all. The southern sympathizers in this area could easily be taken out, lynched in their own yards. Their houses were burned on a regular basis, livestock confiscated by the Union authorities, and it became an eye for an eye. It was so bad that uh, one Union commander actually ordered the depopulation of four entire counties of western Missouri. Everyone had to leave, and then their homes were burned. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Jesse James and, of course, pre-Civil War America. This is Our American Stories.
Young Jesse don't know much, but he's learning fast. Ain't seen a man take to it like young Jesse has. And we're listening to Johnny Cash singing Six Guns Shooting. When we last left off with the inevitable approaching Civil War, Jesse James' brother Frank has joined a southern guerrilla band of bushwhackers, and the James family's hotly contested border state of Missouri is being flooded by both Union and Confederate sympathizers. Let's return to Roger McGrath. Here on Our American Stories, we continue with the story of Jesse James. Here's Jesse James' biographer, Dan Marcoux. The Union militia in the area started looking for these bushwhackers. Zeralda had told everyone that Frank was one of them. 15-year-old Jesse is out plowing in a field when northern soldiers come looking for Frank. Go for your brother, Frank. I don't know where he is. I believe you do, you little rebel son. Hang Frank's respected stepfather, Dr. Reuben Samuel, to a tree. Right in front of Zerelda and Jesse. Until Reuben finally gives up Frank's location. It's this violent experience that will push Jesse to join his brother in the spring of 1864. To be treated like the Jameses were treated demanded that vengeance be taken or you could not hold your head up as a man. In Missouri, vengeance is best got riding with one of the dozens of Confederate guerrilla bands. In the company of these men who operate outside the rules of war, Jesse James will be schooled in the art of ambushing violence and terror. There are no papers to sign, no uniforms, no government-issue firearms. Jesse simply follows creeks and hog trails into the darkness of the Missouri woods where the Confederate guerrillas make camp. Most notorious leader of these Confederate guerrilla bands is Quantrill's Raiders, commanded by William Quantrill. Here's Mark Gardner, author of Shot All to Hell, Jesse James, The Northfield Raid, and The Wild West's Greatest Escape. Quantrill's Raiders were guerrilla fighters fighting for the South. They didn't necessarily fight in traditional ways, and the way they fought could often be very savage, very violent, and their targets could be civilians as well as military. By 1863, Frank James is riding with Quantrell, and a year later, so too, is 17-year-old Jesse. Quantrell's band raid, loot, burn, and kill. Their main targets are the railroads, the lifeblood of the Union advance. One of Quantrell's lieutenants, Bloody Bill Anderson, said of Jesse, not to have any beard, he is the keenest and cleanest fighter in the command. Well, during the summer of 1864, Jesse is shot in the chest. But within a month, he's back in the saddle, and he participates in a train hijacking led by Bloody Bill at Centralia, Missouri. Instead of capturing supplies, they find something even more valuable. Here's Civil War historian Donald Frazier. This train has aboard a number of Union forces and home guards that are on their way home. And they're unarmed. They really pose no threat, but they've now fallen to Bloody Bill Anderson and his band. All you Yankees are gonna die like dogs! 
Bloody Bill's guerrillas kill four civilians and 22 Union soldiers. Bloody Bill wasn't afraid to send a message. That could be pretty brutal. Confederates justifiably argue the massacres are in response to Union atrocities in Missouri. Jesse is shot in the chest a second time, and shortly thereafter learns of Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox in April 1865. After four years of bloody fighting, though, he has no intention of surrendering. For Jesse James, this is not an end of his conflict. This is the end of someone else's conflict. Not Jesse James's conflict, not Frank James's conflict. Their conflict isn't over. It's still going on. Jesse James returns home to his deeply divided border state of Missouri. Here's Old West historian Jeff Morey and David Eisenbach. After the Civil War, the South was hellacious. It had been ruined. And there was a great deal of resentment uh, of Northern authority, of federal authority. Missouri is one of these states that stuck with the Union during the Civil War, but had large sectors of the population that wanted to go with the South in the first place. So you had Missourians fighting Missourians. It's in this incredibly volatile, literally brother against brother world that we get Jesse James. Jesse discovers the war has not only torn apart his homeland, it's left his family with nothing. With Northern Reconstructionists in power across Missouri, Jesse and his brother Frank join forces with their cousins, the brothers Cole, Jim, and Bob Younger, who share their fierce hatred for Yankees. The Youngers also served under Quantrell and Bloody Bill, and ended up losing their father and family home to the Union. Here's Old West historian Marcus Huff. The James and the Youngers had known each other well before the Civil War. Uh, they honed that relationship. They realized the potential they had as a fighting force. What do you reckon's next force? Jesse decides the best way to express his hatred for the North is to go after Northern wealth. They had to do something to strike back against federal authority and everything they saw as being oppressors in their life. They looked at themselves as freedom fighters and tried to strike a blow for Southern manhood and Southern honor and Southern virtue. Having converted to the now worthless Confederate money, there's very little United States currency left in the South. Most of the money held in the banks is coming in from Reconstructionists investing in reunion. Jesse James' decision, therefore, to rob banks is as much political as it is criminal. Oh. The gang's first heist is also the first daylight bank robbery in American history during peacetime. Everything in your vault. It occurs at 2 p.m. in Liberty, Missouri, on a cold, snowy day on February 13, 1866. The bank is owned by Republican former militia officers who recently conducted the first Republican Party rally in Clay County's history. The James Younger Gang hits the jackpot with a sum equal to nearly $900,000 in today's money. And the bank is now known as the Jesse James Bank Museum. Rob a bank? Get it named for you. 
Four months later, in Jackson County, Missouri, the gang frees two jailed members of Quantrill's Raiders, killing the jailer in their effort. That revolver shot is somewhat of a release. Jesse refused to forget. A lot of his makeup was revenge. Come on, Jesse, we gotta go. Jesse, come on, come on! Get, boys, get! Now, the railroads are established by the Union during the war. And the, the railroad is a symbol of northern power and, and progress and a tool to rebuild the country and its wealth. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency, headquartered in Chicago, is hired to guard the cargo of railroads. For Jesse and Frank, the trains are a perfect target. The Pinkertons were essentially the first real detective agency, almost the precursor of an FBI. And their role was to essentially run down criminals. Boy, now put your back into it. Jesse's first train robbery comes in 1873 near Council Bluffs, Iowa. Jesse and company pull a rail out of place, and the train's engineer, John Rafferty, sees it move as the gang tugs on a rope attached to the rail. He immediately reverses the control lever. He saves the train, but he and the locomotive flip off the track and he dies. Jesse and the boys get some 2,000 from the train safe, not the great haul they were expecting, and decide to rob the passengers also. Then waving their hats and shouting farewell, the boys gallop off. Evidently feeling bad about robbing the passengers. Ladies and gentlemen. In their next train robbery, the James gang examined the hands of each male passenger to determine whether he is a workingman. According to a passenger, Jesse and the boys say they did not want to rob working men or ladies, but only the money and valuables of the plug hat gentleman. But the train robberies are bad for both the soft-handed businessmen and the callous-handed workers. The railroads do not want robbers stopping their train. They don't want robbers terrifying their passengers. It's bad for business. In fact, there was one railroad passenger who said, I don't care if it costs me $500. I'm not riding a train through Missouri. I'll go, I'll go around through Iowa or, or Minnesota or whatever, but I'm not going to take a train through the state of Missouri. And when we come back, more of the life of Jesse James. Our American Stories. We're listening to Levon Helm singing one more shot from the 1980 country music concept album The Legend of Jesse James. We last left off with the James Younger Gang wreaking havoc on the train industry. Let's pick up from there. Here's Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. News of the James Brothers holdup spreads quickly. The robbery is a blow to the railroads and embarrasses the Pinkertons. Alan Pinkerton, their founder, who had been a spy for the Union during the Civil War, takes it personally upon himself to bring Jesse to justice. 
In Kansas City, the name Jesse James catches the eye of a former Confederate major turned newspaper editor who is trying mightily to inspire the Confederate wing of the Democratic Party to jump back into the fight. John Newman Edwards was probably the most hardcore of Confederates. And in his opinion, Southerners had been outlawed, disenfranchised by the North. Edwards is a bit of an alcoholic. He's disappointed. He is uh, an unrepentant rebel. And if there was ever a minister of propaganda for the Southern rebels and the outlaws that followed the Civil War, it was John Newman Edwards. In the eyes of John Newman Edwards, Jesse James has achieved hero status. He continues writing about Jesse and those writing with him in a similar vein until his death in 1889. For Edwards and many other Southerners, this is not only about Jesse and other Confederate guerrillas, but about the lost cause of the Old South. Edwards, he wanted to see these downtrodden Confederates take their political future into their own hands. And he thought the James Gang would inspire them. And that's why he started writing positive reports. He made them the legends that they were. In Edwards' fanciful telling, Jesse's religious, kind to women, children, and animals, saves poor widows from foreclosure. Well, he is America's Robin Hood. Thanks to John Newman Edwards and the power of the press, Jesse James is no longer seen as a criminal, but as a folk hero for the South. Here's Jesse James scholar Kathy Jackson. If you're going to be an outlaw, what better way to escape the law and get people to help you than to have them believe that you are doing it for them, for a greater good. Jesse partners with Edwards and continues his robbing spree targeting Northern wealth. Newspaper readers across the country buy into the Robin Hood myth, but not the Pinkertons. Although Governor Silas Woodson issues a $2,000 reward for the James brothers, the biggest threat to Jesse's life comes from the private sector. Alan Pinkerton, who's made an art of reconnaissance and infiltration, sends his ambitious 26-year-old undercover agent, Joseph Witcher, into Clay County. First thing he did after getting off the train was to go to the sheriff, ask where the James or Samuel farm is. He told the sheriff who he was, what he was doing. Sheriff told him, do not go out there. Those boys will kill you. If they don't kill you, the old lady will. He didn't listen. He was later found the next day with four gunshot wounds in his chest and two in his head with a note pinned on his jacket that said, this is what happens to detectives who come looking for the James boys. Alan Pinkerton had never suffered a defeat like this. It became a personal vendetta for him, and he began to undertake the operation on his own expense. A month after murdering Pinkerton agent Witcher, Jesse marries his first cousin, Zerelda Z. Mims, named after Jesse's own mother. But it doesn't slow him down. Trains and banks continue to fall victim to his gang at a startling rate. Largest hauls are $30,000 from the Kansas Pacific Railroad 
and 10,000 in cash and valuables from the Tishomingo Savings Bank in Corinth, Mississippi. On a January night in 1875, a Pinkerton raiding party, suspecting Jesse is visiting home, surrounds the James family farm. Pinkerton knew that the James boys would at some point come to that house. He had men ready, at least eight to 10. Whenever they learned that Jesse and Frank were at that farm, he was gonna send those men in. What are we waiting for? Alan Pinkerton plotted to bring about the demise of the James brothers. The Pinkertons threw a firebomb into the farmhouse in hopes of driving Jesse out. But the only ones home are Jesse's mother, stepfather, and nine-year-old half-brother, Archie. Reuben and Zerelda think it's a firebomb and sweep it into the fireplace. That turns it into an actual bomb. Firebomb explodes and kills Archie and mangles his mother's right hand so bad it is later amputated. The explosion is heard as far away as three miles. John Newman Edwards frames the story of the Pinkerton's raid as a direct attack on the South by a northern enemy. No one is ever brought to trial for the murder of Jesse's half-brother, which again gives Jesse a reason to seek his own justice. If the law is not going to bring these guys to justice, then Jesse's going to do what he can. After the botched raid, Alan Pinkerton's detective agency is forced to back away from their more aggressive tactics. Jesse and Frank hide out in Nashville. In the summer, Z gives birth to Jesse's son, Jesse Edwards James. 1876 looks like it could be a banner year for Jesse. He opens his summer campaign with a $15,000 haul of cash from the Missouri Pacific Railroad. Then Bill Chadwell, a James gang member from Minnesota, suggests they rob what he thinks will be an easy mark in his home state, deep in Northern Territory. The suggestion is debated within the gang, but finally it's decided to head 400 miles north after Bob Younger informs the boys of a major depositor at First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. Here's Reconstructionist historian Eric Foner. You can rob a bank in Missouri. Why do you have to go hundreds of miles away to rob a bank? They got plenty of banks. Because he had heard that the Reconstruction governor of Mississippi, Adelbert Ames, had relatives up in Northfield, and a lot of his money was in this bank. And James decided, we're going to go up there, we're going to rob that bank to take the money of the Reconstruction governor of Mississippi. On September 7th, 1876, the James Younger Gang approaches the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota, just 45 miles south of Minneapolis. But with their long coats and impressive sidearms, the Missouri boys stand out among the mostly farming folk, many of them Swedish immigrants. Move! We intend to rob this here bank! Who's the cash? 
cashier. You open that safe now. And you're listening to the story of Jesse James. And by the way, what a job Roger McGrath does on all of these. To hear more of what we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, the terrific final chapter in this remarkable story. This is Our American Stories. Levon Helm again. And what a singer, by the way. Let's continue where we last left off in this remarkable story of Jesse James. This is Our American Stories. The James Younger Gang have just entered the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. Here's Roger McGrath with the finale. You open that safe now. The key to the success for the James Gang has always been speed, quickness. Joseph Lee Haywood, the cashier that day, delayed them. When Joe Haywood, the bank cashier and Civil War veteran, won't open the vault, Jesse James loses his temper and shoots him in the head. Clear the streets! Jesse's men are firing off their guns, telling people to get back. This is kind of shock and awe uh, in the middle of the street. But these people aren't being shocked, and they're not being awed townspeople are starting to fight back. They're coming to protect their bank. By now, ordinary citizens, butchers, bakers, barbers, hardware merchants, farmers, and nary a lawman among them, were grabbing guns and giving the outlaws what for. Wielding a rifle from the second floor of a hotel, college student and future physician Henry Wheeler fatally shoots gang member Clell Miller. It's pandemonium. The outlaws are firing revolvers, which are pretty inaccurate on horseback. The townspeople have shoulder guns. They're very accurate. These guys are getting shot to pieces on the street. It was a complete disaster for the James gang. And the only thing for them to do is to try to get out of town alive. Hardware merchant Ansel Manning blasts Bill Chadwall into eternity and then shoots Bob Younger's horse out from under him. Younger rolls free of his wounded mount and takes cover behind a staircase. The outlaws return fire, but bullets are coming at them from several directions. Some unarmed citizens throw rocks. After seven minutes of gunfighting, Jesse orders a retreat, and the gang splits up. Joseph Lee Haywood, the acting cashier that day, was a thorn in the side to the plans of these robbers. He delayed them. 
they don't get the money they come for. In fact, the safe was unlocked the whole time. Had they just tried that handle, it would have opened up and revealed about $15,000. The robbery is a complete failure. Now the Minnesotans want justice. More than a 1,000 grab their firearms and form posses and picket lines, triggering the largest manhunt in American history. There are at least a 1,000 men going after these guys. It was instant national news, especially when the James gang was associated with this robbery. Jesse and Frank were Southern boys and murderers. They were hated in Minnesota, and everyone wanted to see them captured and brought to justice. Jesse and Frank go one way, but the Youngers are apprehended. This is the ill-fated moment in the career where what had been a successful gang has reached a dead end. Over the course of the next two weeks, all of the James gang are either captured or killed, except for Frank and Jesse. These guys were masters at concealing themselves and getting away. They had to do it all during the Civil War. They were always outnumbered. They always had people chasing them. Northfield was the biggest disaster that James had experienced since the Civil War. They lost men that they had fought with. They both suffered gunshot wounds. But I think in a way, mentally in some way, they're wounded as well. Frank and Jesse ride a circuitous 500 miles back home to Missouri with just $26.70 to show for their efforts. Frank, he ultimately thought, the way this is going, it's going to be a bullet or a noose for them. But Jesse, he was dire. After losing every member of his gang, the most wanted man in America goes into hiding over the next several years. Jesse spends his time living under aliases as a family man, now with two children in Missouri, Kentucky, and Kansas. Danger seats do not move. Then in 1879, with his spoils running low and his name out of the press, Jesse returns to action with the new James gang and takes $6,000 from the Chicago and Alton Railroad. At this point, he's just finding somebody that can hold a gun and hold a horse and that hopefully is trustworthy. Jesse plans a job for April 4, 1882 in Platt City, Nebraska. A bank there is stuffed with cash and needs his attention. Two young and newly recruited gang members, Charles and Robert Ford, will go along. Charlie helped Jesse rob the Chicago and Alton Railroad, but Bob has yet to see any action. Jesse needs an extra man because he has uh, a bank robbery planned in Platte City. So he's willing to accept this young Bob Ford, who's Charlie's brother, because Jesse liked Charlie Ford, and, and I'm sure that Charlie vouched for Bob. They were not a ghost of what he'd had before, just common run-of-the-mill backcountry thieves and killers. You don't have the people who were trained, if you will, during the war. America's most wanted outlaw doesn't realize it. It's not the law he should be most afraid of, but his newest gang member 
Bob Ford, who is secretly working for Missouri Governor Thomas Crittenden. The governor has posted a $10,000 bounty for Jesse, dead or alive, and Ford is determined to get it. Bob Ford was this media-saturated fan. There's no better way to get close to the object of your admiration than to join his gang. And maybe in some way become a little bit like him. That's the picture of Bob Ford that we have today. Before they leave for Platte City, Jesse and the Ford brothers meet for breakfast at Jesse's home. After enjoying a hearty meal prepared for them by Jesse's wife, Z, they retire to the living room to discuss their upcoming job. When Jesse steps up on a chair to straighten a picture, Bob Ford quickly draws his revolver and shoots Jesse through the back of the head. He topples to the floor and dies. America's most notorious outlaw is 34 years old. Bob and Charlie Ford are convicted of murder and sentenced to be hanged. In a matter of days, though, they receive a full pardon from Governor Crittenden. Nonetheless, the same governor fails to reward them with the $10,000 bounty. You know, Jesse James is already a hero to many people. When he's killed, he's now a martyr. And it's the way that he's killed. Had he been captured and tried, and had he been executed, it would have been much different. But this is a collusion between the governor of a state and a gang member who shoots his leader in the back of the head. Two years later, 27-year-old Charlie Ford, suffering from tuberculosis and morphine addicted, shoots himself to death with his own gun. A decade later, Bob Ford, who wasn't celebrated as the hero he thought he should have been, is shot to death by Ed O'Kelly. Jesse reaches incredible new heights in the American imagination as a hero, as a martyr, and as a representative of the defeated South. But I grew up in Jesse James' country. When I was a kid, Jesse James was a hero. Now, I see Jesse as a tragic consequence of an awful, awful war, which was a tragic consequence of an awful, awful institution. Here's folk singer Almeida Riddle. I'm sure you've read of Frank and Jesse James. Well, my father's grandfather and their father was brothers. I never was ashamed that the James boys were my cousins, but neither was I proud of it. <laughs> Jesse James was a man who killed many men and robbed many express train. And the people all would say for many miles away They were robbed by Frank and Jesse James Jesse had a wife to mourn for his life And his children too were brave But a dirty little coward they called Robert Howard laid Jesse James in his grave. And what storytelling. Great job, as always, by Greg. And my goodness, Roger McGrath, what a star. He's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. 
and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to all that he's done, all that we do. We have over 800 hours of storytelling up there. If you're on a long trip, download it all. You can get us on iTunes, too. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, the story of Jesse James, the story of the Civil War in a way in a divided country, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Rule of Law series, and we've done several, Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and now we join Alex Cortez, who brings us our latest in the Rule of Law series. I tell more people today that if a dairy farmer goes to a psychiatrist and lays on that bench and that psychiatrist asks him questions before you're done, he's going to want to commit you. Because there's got to be something wrong with you. To be clear, this Maryland dairy farmer Randy Sowers is, including himself, in that category too. There absolutely has to be something wrong with somebody that deals with what we deal with every day for no more than we get out of it. We bought these farms three years ago I mean, it's just going to be a burden on me and my kids to get these farms paid for. And then if their kids, you know, decide to stay in farming, one of these days they might, you know, get some benefit from it. But right now the farms are costing us more than we can make off of them. There's farmers dropping over. I think the bank sent 10 notices out last week of foreclosures. We've got a neighbor up here they foreclosed on in January. It's like land. You don't make farmers usually. I mean, farmers are born and raised and they know what to do and they have the heart to do it. I mean, most people, you know, wouldn't even consider doing what we do, and it's seven days a week. I mean, you don't get a break. For 38 years that I've been doing this, I've gotten up as early as 11.15 at night to milk. Wait, did he just say get up at night? Who gets up at night? Besides folks, of course, who have night shifts, but that's not Randy's situation. Well, I try to get to bed by 7 or 7.30 pretty hard when it's still light outside, but that's what I have to do. In the early years, I didn't have any help. I was getting at 11.15, but then I'd get done about 7 or 8 in the morning. And I'd sleep till 10 o'clock and get up and get back to work. But the last 20 years, we've been getting up at midnight, me and my wife, and we milk the first shift of cows, and we usually get back home about 4 o'clock. We don't milk them all anymore, but we do milk the first shift because what I found out was over the years when I depend on somebody else to get in there early, they don't show up and then it makes the whole day go bad. So I just decided I might as well just do it myself. That way you get the day started and the people supposed to, you know, come after me, they better be there. I'm going to go get them out of bed because I know where they are. Since we retired in December, we're going to milk five mornings a week, but the other two we do farmer's markets. It's pretty nice through the winter, though, because we don't have the one Sunday market through the winter, and I got to sleep in on Sunday morning. Some idea of retirement. (laughs) 
And a couple of years ago, his government tried to throw him an early retirement party. So we were had a store on the farm and we were doing farmer's market. We were handling a lot of cash. And we just deposited it in the bank. I always wondered whether the government should ever show up someday and want to know where all the cash came from, which didn't bother me because I knew it was all legal, so I didn't worry about it too much. Paid taxes on it, just like anything else. I mean, we were depositing it in the bank every week. Uh, this summer, we were doing probably five farmer's markets a week, and we were bringing in somewhere around that 10000 mark every week. I mean... Sometimes we went over that, and sometimes we had special events. And this one particular time, we had our festival, so we had a lot of money to deposit that week, and she went in. She being Randy's bride and partner, Karen. Went in and tried to deposit. It was twelve dollars or $14,000 or something like that. And the bank took it, but the teller told her, you know, it would help her out if you keep these deposits under $10,000, and she would not have to fill out paperwork. So that's what my wife did. Not knowing that a federal law called the Bank Secrecy Act requires banks to report all transactions $10,000 and up to the federal government. A law originally intended to make it easier to find folks who were laundering money, running illegal drug and gambling operations, and to charge them with much larger crimes. But it still was unwise for this bank teller to have the Sowers do this because technically, although rarely pursued, what they did was an illegal act on its own. What they call structuring. Structuring your deposits so that they're below the reporting requirement. So it was definitely every Monday she was paying, putting in $9,500 to $9,900 in cash in this account for 32 weeks. So we had a lawyer on staff at that time, and he was there that morning. February 29th, 2012. For some reason, he just left. And a store called me and said there was some government people over there that needed to talk to me. And I went in there was two treasury agents. You know, showing me their badges and they had their guns on and, you know, one talked to me about a banking account. So I tried to call my lawyer right away and he didn't answer the phone. So I just, like I said, I still didn't have a problem because I didn't think I had anything to hide. So I went and sat down at the office and they started asking me questions. And I don't know what the questions were anymore except for the last one they asked me. He said, where'd you get all this cash? And they knew about the Sowers' cash because through a controversial legal maneuver called civil asset forfeiture, they had already seized his bank account with $63,000 in it at the time without even convicting him of a crime, which turns upside down a fundamental principle of the rule of law, innocent until proven guilty. Randy was made guilty before anything was proven. Although these IRS agents didn't tell Randy that they had seized his bank account, yet they still needed to trap him. And um, I said, well, you know, we do store and farmer's markets and you know, some weeks we get as much as 12 or $14,000. 
Well, they didn't ask me any more questions after that because that's the only answer the question they needed me to answer to say that sometime I had more than 10 and I wasn't depositing it. The government agents tricked Randy and got him to admit to committing a crime that he didn't even know was a crime. Think about this question. Should the government be able to go after you for a crime that you don't know is a crime? And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Randy Sowers' story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're back with our rule of law story on the federal government seizing the bank account of a dairy farmer, Randy Sowers, and for simply following his bank teller's request to make deposits below a $10,000 threshold that legally requires her to file lengthy paperwork to the government. Let's pick up where we last left off. Think about this question. Should the government be able to go after you for a crime that you don't know is a crime? Well, in 1994, the Supreme Court said that the answer was no. That the word willfully in the Bank Secrecy Act should be interpreted as a person who knew that it was illegal to structure payments below the reporting threshold. It wasn't simply enough to show that the defendant knew about the reporting requirement, which the Sowers didn't really know either. The teller just told them that it would help her avoid the paperwork. But this ruling was unacceptable to government prosecutors, and they convinced Congress to amend the wording of the Bank Secrecy Act so that they could prosecute Americans like Randy who don't know that structuring is illegal. So they had me on structuring because not that I knew there was a law that I said I had to deposit every cent I got every week. Maybe I spent it on something else that week. And still didn't have more than $10,000, but it really didn't matter to them. And they were pretty nice, I guess nice. But they said, you know, we can see you're a legitimate business. We don't really don't think you're a London money launderer or drug dealer or nothing like that. But now, since it's gone this far, you're going to have to go through the system to see if you can get your money back. Gone this far as their boss, then Maryland's U.S. attorney, Rod Rosenstein, was already committed to the case. And there's no way that they thought that they could get him to back down on it. A judge had already issued a warrant for the seizure of Randy's bank account. Randy's money was this close to being theirs. Once they knew that I was not a drug dealer or a money launderer, they should have just gave me my money back and thanked me for my service to this country, and that would have been the end of it. But they don't. They got your money and they want it. And, you know, over this period of time, it's not the IRS that gets a lot of that money. It's the local people that, you know, find this problem. They get their cut, too. Everybody gets their cut. That's how they make their budgets. 
So if they take all their money away, how are they going to pay their, you know, all these uh, things they get for because of all the structuring money? And the Department of Justice in Maryland is particularly active in pursuing this structuring money. In the fiscal year 2011, Maryland brought 14 of the nation's 99 structuring cases, 14% of them, even though they only make up 1.8% of the nation's population. So supposedly, Maryland citizens are eight times more likely to be committing crimes than the rest of us, or... Something else is going on. Rod Rosenstein is on the record as saying that anti-structuring efforts are, quote, an increasing area of emphasis for the Justice Department, and there has been an influx of resources to investigate it. Thus, I'd be disappointed if there wasn't an uptick in prosecution. So my lawyer called whoever the prosecutor was on the case, Rod Rosenstein actually was the Department of Justice in Maryland at the time. So I'd like to see him go to jail now, I'll go visit him. But he called him. One of Rod's deputies. He said, well, that's the way it goes. I mean, we'll, we'll negotiate and, you know, we'll probably keep half that money. We might even be able to negotiate that down some, but, you know, usually, you know, We'll negotiate some kind of a a deal. Treating it all too casually, like it's negotiating something at a garage sale. Not $30,000 of a business's, a family's livelihood. So, somehow, and I don't know how it all came down, but there was another lawyer that showed up. And he'd been you know, working on this structuring thing for a long time. But they all told me, you know, to keep my mouth shut and not tell anybody about it. Well, I didn't call the newspapers, but when I went to the farmer's markets that weekend, everybody knew that the government stole my money. Everybody walked up the table, and they only know how my week goes. I told them the story. <laughs> and they, they, they couldn't believe it. So it wasn't too long after that that... Uh, I got a call from the Baltimore City Paper, and he was questioning me about, you know, this, because he saw the docs come out of the federal court in Baltimore. And I said, you know, I'd love to tell you this story, but my lawyer said, until we get this thing settled, I better just not say nothing. But that's what the government wanted everybody to do, say nothing, so they can steal your money and nobody knows what's going on. So uh, he said, well, you know, if that's the way you want to look at it, but I'm going to do this story and it don't look good on your part. Fire right from what the government says. So his government's allowed to speak about him, but they say that he's not allowed to respond? Because people already thought we'd done something wrong. I mean, everybody. Her, her parents thought we'd done something wrong. I think my parents might have <laughs> thought we'd done something wrong. And so I told him the whole story. So <clears throat> when we got our settlement papers, you know, we knew from the case on the Eastern Shore with the uh, Taylor family. We knew what their settlement was, but my settlement was different. I was going to admit that I did something wrong in the settlement, and I wasn't going to do it. So when my lawyer called them, he says, because your client went to the press. And he sent us an email that said it. 
Rosenstein's deputy, Stefan Casella, actually wrote an email that they were treated differently because, quote, Mr. Taylor did not give an interview to the press, admitting as clear as day that the government is acting according to a rule of vengeance, not according to the American promise of the rule of law. So he said wasn't going to do be any negotiating. You know they were keeping close to thirty thousand dollars, and it wasn't any negotiating. Now since I went to the press, if we would have fought him, if we would have fought him, they would have got took the whole three hundred sixty thousand dollars we deposited in that checking account that year. So that was another thing they were holding against us. Said you can fight us, but you know you're not going to win, and then we're going to want three hundred sixty thousand dollars. This is what you call blackmail. Either pay us 30000 or we're going to come after you for more, 360000 And by the way, fighting us in court will cost you a lot more than 30000 So you might as well just pay us right now. A pretty good business to be in if you're the government. They can do this all day long and do but not a great business proposition if you're Randy and Karen, especially when you're trying to do your actual business of farming. It's a no-win situation for them. They lose no matter what. So the Sowers decided to forfeit $30,000 of their seized money to the government and try to move on with their lives. Farmers don't have time to go out and fight it. You can't fight them. You surely can't fight the government. But in the meantime, Institute for Justice had been working on some of these cases, and my lawyer got me in contact with them, and they came out and we had a meeting about it. But since my case was already settled, they just really wasn't a whole lot they could do. And when we come back, we're going to hear what happens when liberty lawyers get involved, and that's what the Institute for Justice's lawyers are. They protect people's property rights from the government. And always remember why the Constitution was formed, because we all know that most of our cops and prosecutors are good guys. But the bad ones, and boy, there were some bad ones here, folks. And you know it, right? You know it. When we come back, the law on behalf of the citizens starts to take action. Randy Sauer's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, give us your email address, and we will send you our five best stories of the week. And they'll be in transcript form, so you can read them or you can listen to them. And by the way, if you have your story about government power coming in on your life, if you've settled on an IRS form, if you settled for something when you didn't think you were guilty, Send those stories to us. We'll run them down because this is happening all over the country and it's happening a lot more than you think. Again, this is Our American Stories. When we return, the dairy farmer Randy Sowers shaken down by his own government, a guy just trying to get along every day like the rest of us.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're back with the final portion of our rule of law story on the federal government seizing over $30,000 of dairy farmer Randy Sauer's money for simply following his own bank teller's request to make deposits below a $10,000 threshold. And now, let's get back to the story. Farmers don't have time to go out and fight it. You surely can't fight the government. But in the meantime, Institute for Justice had been working on some of these cases. But since my case was already settled, they just really wasn't a whole lot they could do. But it was probably a year or two later when I got a call from the House Ways and Means Committee and said they were, they were having a hearing on structuring. You didn't know if I would testify. And this was only like two or three days before, you know, the, it happened. And I think, you know, they were trying to get people to testify, but they're still afraid to testify. Understandably afraid of putting the government's target on their back again. Randy told Congress that he would testify in their big city only 90 minutes away from his home, but one that the Sours didn't like to go to. Oh, and very, we delivered milk down there a couple of times. But, yeah, that wasn't fun. Yeah. So what we do, we'd milk and then we'd get in the car and we'd go down to Institute for Justice uh, Arlington, Virginia. Office in Arlington, and we'd park and then sleep in the car for a couple hours so we didn't have to deal with the traffic. And then they would take us to the to D.C. for the hearings. Yeah, we ate high hops on the way down, but it doesn't get any more American than that. Milking in the middle of the night, driving still in the middle of the night to avoid traffic. Then you got to make some time for IHOP, and then you know, just a little bit of sleep in a parking lot while you don't shower before you testify before some congressmen who are in fancy suits and ties while you, in a checkered short sleeve shirt, no suit, no jacket, no tie, you take on your government. So me and two other guys testified, and that was an eye-opening experience too, and all those all those congressmen and senators on that committee, I mean, they were beating that guy from the IRS. And, but he, he, could, he could take it and not ever answer a question. Just sit there like there was nothing, you know. Well, it really wasn't me that did this, you know, it was somebody else, but they just kept passing the buck. So um, Institute for Justice filed something to get our money back. They filed a petition for remission or mitigation, which are requests for the government to relieve them from a past judgment. Institute for Justice's petition was clear. No American should have their money taken from them just because they deposited it in so-called wrong amounts that they didn't know were wrong. And over 10 months passed without a single response from the government. So to ramp up pressure, the House Ways and Means Committee, in a bipartisan fashion, both Democrats and Republicans were outraged by this story, called back both Randy and the government to testify again. That second House Ways and Means Committee meeting... And they were demanding that guy from Justice and IRS to give us our money back. Like I say, they were sitting there like it was just water off their back. They didn't care. 
But behind the scenes, they did care. They were made to care. They were sweating the negative attention this brought them. Finally, we got our money back, and we were probably the first ones that's ever gotten their total amount back. I don't know. They said they apologized, but they never apologized to us for anything. Five years. That's how long it took to get their money back. The Sours money could have been put to use making their business more money, hiring more workers, and paying their workers more. But the government doesn't pay a fine or interest to account for this fact. To account for the fact that because of inflation, the Sours $30,000 became less than $30,000 while the government was holding it for them. So, I believe in God. I am where I am today because God tells me what to do and I listen to him. And the reason why, you know, I fight the government and nobody else will is two things in the Bible. Because God says, no hand held against you will prosper. And in the 23rd Psalm, it says, he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And that's what he does. It's just, you know, you have to win. Today, you hire lawyers, they're not out there to win. They're out there to get together and compromise and say, okay, if we do it this way, you'll make this much money and I'll make this much money. We don't have to fool around in court and file this paperwork, but we're all going to make money. But then nobody ever wins. And you have to win. This country that we know is not like it used to be. And it's going to be nothing is what it's going to be. It's going to be just like any other country. You're not going to have any rights. You're not going to run a business. And that's why Randy is so grateful that the Nonprofit Institute for Justice is there fighting to win. For him and for the over 200 other citizens whom the government had their backs up against the wall and couldn't afford to fight them until Institute for Justice took up their case at no cost to them and with no reward ever going to the nonprofit. Institute for Justice is a bunch of young lawyers that are concerned about this country. And I've met a good many of them and they all have the same outlook. I mean, they're not out there to make a lot of money. I, don't know, I have no idea how much money they make. I don't care. Most all their money comes in donations from people that like what they see and not people like me because I don't have a lot of money to give them. I mean, people think I have a lot of money. I mean, so now I live in a big house, but you know, the house came with the land we bought. You know, I didn't really want the house, it's too big. That's why I'm living there, just two of us, because nobody else wanted to live in it. But you know, the people, what people think about farmers is, is ridiculous because they think you're rich because you got big machines and it costs a lot of money and that's why you're not rich because you got to have those machines to do what you do. And great work as always, Alex. And what a story. By the way, a major bank CEO confidentially told us that the government has essentially forced them into being their own private snooping army with their compliance departments having to mine their customers' accounts for what the government might deem suspicious activity, giving them no choice but to report many innocent citizens like Randy Sowers to the government for investigation. 
The CEO said that this forced snooping sweeps up far more information than anything that the NSA did related to phone records and yet has received almost zero attention. And that's what we're doing here in Our American Stories, bringing this story to your attention. There's also a big problem of selective prosecution here. The government has seized the bank accounts of innocent farmers like Randy Sowers, but refused to charge politicians like former New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, who was actually guilty of structuring his payments to prostitutes. And you bet he knew what structuring was. There's bipartisan legislation out there, folks, and it's sponsored by Democrats like Congressman Sheila Jackson Lee and Republicans like Senator Ted Cruz. And that doesn't happen too often. So that's how bad this prosecutorial abuse is, folks. Of course, that would change the statute so that you can't be charged for a crime that you don't know is a crime. It's called mens rea, folks. It's the heart of criminal law. If you don't know a crime's a crime, you can't be charged with it. This is Lee Habib, Randy Sauer's story, and thank goodness for the Institute for Justice. Look them up, folks. Give them some money. They do great, great work protecting property rights for Randy and maybe one day for people like you. Again, this is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Stupid Cupid, the hit song from the highest-selling female recording artist in human history. And we're talking about Connie Francis, who sold over 200 million record sales, 200 million in her name. And we're fortunate that she joins us now. Thanks for being with us, Connie. My pleasure, Lee. Connie, before we get to our interview, we want to surprise you with something, well, We featured our celebration of your life story, and one of our listeners wrote to us and said that he had a role to play in a part of your story, and we were so moved by it, Connie, that we asked him to record it, and we'd like to take a listen together. I very much enjoy your stories. I don't get to listen to all of them. You do a great job with the ones I do get to hear. One night I was listening and you were talking to Connie Francis. And I was taken back to that time, you see, because Connie visited my hospital when she toured Vietnam. Your story asked her about the important events in her life, and she talked about seeing different facilities out in the boondocks. She didn't want to stay with just where the generals told her to go and what to see. So she wanted to get out and see what the war was really about. The base camp was in a province in a city called Tainin, northwest of Saigon, close to Cambodia. I was the chief clerk, so once Connie got to our facility, 
the officers, of course, greeted her and, you know, did all the PR things. And because I was the chief clerk, I had access to the guest book. When celebrities came around, we'd have them sign it. I got her started on tour. And if I remember right, we were not busy with any incoming that day, but we had lots of wounded in the fourth and fifth recovery Quonset hut. Of course, some were wounded more than others. And I distinctly remember that when she arrived to start her tour, she was all smiles and very, very gracious, glad to see us. When she exited the wounded units, she was very shook. The color of her face was ashen, and about the only place she looked was down. That reflects on what she said on your story, and I'll paraphrase. It was the most gratifying thing that I've done. After that trip, I changed and got a lot more serious. She says, I was against the war, but not against the troops. And I can speak for every Vietnam veteran when I say that we appreciated everything celebrities and entertainers did to keep our spirits up. We were reminded when we left what was back in the world, as we called it, to return to the USA. I'm sure she doesn't remember specifics but I wonder if you could pass along the note from me, Gary Wagoner, Chief Clerk of the 45th Mobile Unit Self-Contained Transportable Hospital. I don't know, you know, whether we were the first hospital she visited or uh, whether or not she had already been to other field hospitals. But from what I remember, just the way she looked after she saw the wounded, uh, that seemed to me like it was quite a shock to her. So God bless you, Miss Francis. We appreciated your visit and the time you took away from your tour to, to entertain us. And what a story. And Kania, we were just sorry to spring that on you, but we didn't know how else to do it. And we'd love to hear your comment about that story because it's so beautiful. Um. That trip was the most eventful of my life, and I will never forget it. To me, every one of those guys was a hero, and I don't know how they withstood one year of that hellhole because it was it was just death. Just you could smell the death all over, everywhere you went, and. It distressed me a great deal when our troops returned from Vietnam and they were given the worst greeting ever by the American public. These boys were drafted. They had no choice but to flee to Canada or to fight in that war. And it was a war that should never have been fought. I think a lot of people think that, Connie. And by the way, we have a second surprise for you. This listener, Gary Wagoner, he's on the phone with us right now, Connie. We figured we'd connect him to you. Gary, uh, why don't you talk to Connie and just uh, pay your appreciation now all these years later? Hi, Gary. Um, oh, hi. Uh, can I call you, Connie? Of course I can. 
Yeah, please do. <laughs> uh, not bad memory for a guy that can't remember what he had for breakfast, right? Right. <laughs> can I can I ask you? You saw a number of the MACV hospitals. Was the 45th Surgical in Tainin, was that the first one that you saw? I went to the MACV hospitals on every base that I visited. I went there first because a lot of the boys that were wounded couldn't come to my shows. So I would go to the MACV hospitals first before doing a show. Right. So it might have been the first, but it might not have been. Because I went, in every base, I went to a Magsy Hospital. Well, the reason why I ask is because I remember you walking out of the ward. And it was almost like you had never seen the troops wounded. The devastation. Yeah, yeah. It was almost like, you know, oh, geez, what's going on here? And I was almost embarrassed I remember that bringing you the book to ask you to sign, I thought, man, you know, I'm sure she doesn't want to sign it, not because she doesn't want to sign it, but just, you know, you had a whole bunch of stuff going on in your head that you had just viewed. I did a lot of signing over there. Right, <laughs> right. I, I signed thousands of autographs over there. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, I didn't do much over there. I pounded a typewriter for a year, but we did get what happened out in the field. And, uh, you know, when we heard the helicopters coming in, much like I'm sure you've seen MASH and radar yelling incoming, um, we knew 99% of the time it was not going to be good news. Right. So, as you said, some of the things that uh, we had to unload off the helicopters was stuff that I don't think any of us, even what I call the lifers, the guys, the the 30- and 40-year-old sergeants that uh, had been in the Army forever, I mean, I don't think they were... It was shocking. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and to draftees that really didn't want to be there, of which I had a number of friends, it was really just something that I'm not surprised that we sent back uh, drug addicts and, in my case, alcoholics. Knock on wood, I've stopped. But, you know, people that just couldn't handle the devastation. Yes, uh, and PTSD was, was unknown then. Correct, correct. It hadn't been given a name yet. And all of these troops thought they were crazy. And... Well, um, there, there was, there was. Uh, today we have 26 troops a day still committing suicide as a result of PTSD. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, I want to thank you for taking time out, especially in Tainin. We were, <laughs> uh, we were out in the boonies. There's no question about that. Yeah. The, uh, I wanted to find out what the war was all about. Yes, ma'am. And unfortunately, I asked a lot of questions. Well, un- unfortunately, you got a you got a big dose of it when you went through the uh, wards at my hospital. And I also heard that you really went out of your way when you got names and addresses and phone numbers of the guys in the wards. And then you yeah, know. I got I took down 500 names and called their families when I got home. 
well, you are, uh, you know, words escape me. Wonderful doesn't cover it. Well, Gary, I, I really appreciate you reaching out to us, sending that. Connie, it meant so much to us for you to join us for the hour. But, you know, in the end, as you had said, all those records, all those sales. But that human touch, that showed the real heart of Connie Francis. In the yep. end, the real heart of America. As Americans disagreed about the war, and many good people disagreed, the, the American people, well, many of them, most of them, treated our soldiers so poorly. And, Connie, you did not. And it was appreciated by our men in uniform. It's still appreciated today. And thank you to thank Gary. You. Thank you to Gary Wagner. Thank you, Gary. And thank Funny. you. If, and I mean this sincerely. If you're ever out in the Los Angeles area, I'd love to buy you lunch or dinner. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> and thank you, Gary. And we bring these kind of stories together here, folks. One of the great pop singers of all time, a guy who happens to be serving in Vietnam, and the two of them meet in a faraway place and show mutual love and mutual respect for one another. Connie Francis's story, Gary Wagoner's story, a bit of the American story in the heart of one of our darkest times and darkest wars, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 